All right, as we continue our study of the life of Christ, we come to a, a fairly significant event because tonight we're going to enter the last week of Jesus' life. In particular, we're going to start tonight by studying the, what, what is commonly called the triumphal entry. And with the triumphal entry, as I've already alluded to, with this particular event, we enter the last week of Jesus' life. We enter what is commonly called the Passion Week. Now, you may not know what the, why it's called Passion Week, and we don't use that terminology in, in the Churches of Christ very often, but I felt like it might be useful for you to understand. The designation Passion Week is derived from the Latin term passio, which means suffering. So it's in essence referring to the week of Christ's suffering. Now, I'm not saying you need to start using that terminology. I just want you to be aware of it so you know uh, why it gets used and, and you know where it comes from, that sort of thing. But the significance of this week in Jesus' life is evident if you look at how many chapters of the Gospels are dedicated to this one week. It's been estimated that somewhere between 25 and 48 percent of the Gospels are given to the last week of Jesus' life. That's a pretty substantial amount when you think that his ministry covered at least three years and his life covered at least 30-something years. And the last week, the last seven days, gets something like 25 or 30 percent of, of the space of that life. That's pretty significant when we start looking at these last seven days. And that's why the bulk of this third quarter of our study is dedicated to just one week. So tonight we transition into this very significant time in the life of Jesus. And I want to deal with one subject up front that doesn't specifically relate to the triumphal entry, but will vicariously or will relate in some way momentarily. I want to discuss something that is a timeline issue. And that has to do with on what day Jesus was crucified. So I'm going to pose a question to you, and I hope you'll be honest and be willing to raise your hand. Do you believe that Jesus was crucified on Friday? Raise your hand. Do you believe that Jesus was crucified on a different day of the week? Raise your hand. Do you believe that Jesus was crucified? Raise your hand. <laughs> because a lot of you didn't raise your hand on either of those questions. So here's the thing. There is, a, there is a lot of debate on what day of the week Jesus was crucified. And I want to say this up front before, before I present to you the case of, of uh, what I'm going to use as the timeline. I want to say this up front. Believe it or not, it doesn't matter what day of the week Jesus was crucified. Because regardless of whether you believe it was Friday or Thursday or even some believe Wednesday, we all agree that he rose on Sunday. That's what matters. That's the day that matters. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, what, whatever day he's crucified on, we, we all agree the first day of the week, Sunday, he rose from the grave. That's what it centers around. That's the most important. So I, I, I say that as I build into this. I believe Jesus was crucified on Friday. And I'm going to share with you the argument against it and then the argument for it. Um, and again, it does not matter if you believe Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. It doesn't matter because we agree he wrote Sunday. But because as we go through the last week of Jesus' life, I'm going to point out timeline factors that this happened on this day or this day or this day. It helps for you to understand that I'm coming at it with the belief that he's crucified on Friday and, and why I believe that. But let's start with this. Everything hinges on the fact that Scripture declares that Jesus was crucified on the day of preparation. Matthew chapter 27, verse 62. Mark chapter 15, verse 42. Luke chapter 23 and verse 54. All those verses indicate that Jesus' crucifixion took place on the day of preparation, the day before the Sabbath. Now, to what is the day of preparation referring? The traditional view, which believes that it's referring to Friday, suggests that uh, the day of preparation is a reference to the day before the weekly Sabbath, which is com the command of Le the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 3, that the Sabbath would be observed on the seventh day of the week, every week. And the day of preparation would be Friday, the day before that weekly Sabbath. So the traditional view holds that Jesus 
was crucified on the day of preparation, which is Friday, the day before the weekly Sabbath. The alternative view, and I'm not trying to, d- to demean that belief, that view. I'm not trying to demean it with that terminology. Actually, it's terminology I took from Stan Quinn's handout that he does on this. Um, he, the, but the alternative view says that the day of preparation is a re- reference to the day before the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread that we also refer to as the Passover because on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, a.k.a. the Passover, on that day you observe the Sabbath. And so the alternative view believes that the uh, day of preparation is not a reference to the day before the Saturday, the weekly Sabbath, but the day before the Passover, which is observed as a Sabbath. Therefore, Passover... Uh, which would be uh, observed on what we would refer to as Friday, is a Sabbath, meaning you have two back-to-back Sabbaths that week. Friday and Saturday are Sabbaths. No work on two days in a row. Wow, I wish I could experience that. Now, uh, you have a Sabbath on Friday and a Sabbath on Saturday, which means the day of preparation for the day, uh, the first day of unleavened bread or the Passover, that day of preparation would be on Thursday. Actually, Thursday would be the day of preparation for two Sabbaths, if you really think about it. That is a very good argument for Jesus' crucifixion happening on Thursday because there is a double Sabbath happening. There's also another reason the alternative timeline uh, is supported by many. And that is the passage that appears in Matthew chapter 12, verse 39 and 40. I encourage you to turn there with me. I did not put it up on the projector tonight, but Matthew chapter 12, and I want you to notice in particular verse 39 and 40 of Matthew 12. This is a passage where the scribes and the Pharisees told Jesus, we wish to see a sign from you. They're requesting a sign from Jesus to authenticate who he is. But Jesus responds by saying, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. See, those who hold to the alternative view that Jesus was crucified on Thursday not only believe it because Thursday would be the day of preparation for the Sabbath that's happening on Friday in association with the Passover, but also because three days and three nights in the tomb. Day one would be Thursday. Jesus goes into the tomb during daylight hours on Thursday, And even though he may only be in there for a few minutes or an hour, that counts as a day. And then you have the nighttime Thursday night, daytime Friday, daytime Friday night, daytime Saturday. I said daytime Friday night, didn't I? It doesn't work that way. So daytime Friday, nighttime Friday night, daytime Saturday, nighttime Saturday night, coming out of the grave on Sunday. So mathematically... Luke chapter, I mean, Matthew chapter 12, verse 39 and 40, three days, three nights, a Thursday crucifixion makes that verse work. Now, that's pretty good uh, evidence for a Thursday crucifixion. So why do I still believe it happened on Friday? Well, and I could be wrong. It's happened once. But here's the thing. Every other passage in the Gospels that reference the time Jesus spends in the tomb only says three days. Matthew chapter 12 12 is the oddity. It's the only time three nights is ever mentioned. It's the only place that language is used. In fact, Luke's parallel account of what's said in Matthew chapter 12 doesn't reference time at all. Luke says in Luke chapter 11, verse 29 through 30, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so the Son of Man will be to this generation. See, typically when 
the gospel authors reference the time in the tomb, they would say on the third day or after three days or in three days. They would not reference nights. And Matthew even does this. In every other time that he mentions it. So let me show you what I mean. Go to Mark chapter 8 and look at verse 31. It's after the great confession. We're told that Jesus began to teach his disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. No reference. Matthew's parallel account says on the third day in Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. Luke's parallel account says on the third day in Luke chapter 9, verse 22. You can skip one chapter over in Mark to chapter 9, verse 31. It repeats this terminology. Jesus teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and when he is killed, after three days he will rise. Matthew's account says on the third day, in Matthew chapter 17, verse 23. You can skip one more chapter over to Mark chapter 10, verse 32 through 34. It's fascinating to me how these verses line up. Mark 8, 31, Mark 9, 31, Mark 10, 32. And as Jesus is approaching Jerusalem, he takes the apostles aside and explains what's going to happen. He says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And Matthew agrees with Mark again, saying on the third day, Luke does the same thing. But the most famous reference to the time he spends in the grave was his declaration about destroying the temple, John chapter 2, verse 19. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. That's the phrase that gets used against him in his trials. That's the phrase that gets used to mock him when he's on the cross. And I find that so fascinating, that Matthew's one passage in chapter 12 is the only passage in the Gospels that adds the and three nights. Now, that's not really just the fact that it's the only one. That's not really evidence that it's wrong. No, I, I just find it fascinating that that's the only time. That it's the, um, what's the word? It's the oddity. It's the odd man out type verse. I even find it interesting that in Matthew's gospel in chapter 27, some of, it indicates that some of Jesus' opponents realized that Jesus was referencing his own resurrection with this whole, in three days I will raise up terminology. And so they go to Pilate, Matthew chapter 27, verse 63. And they say, sir, remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen. I find it interesting that his opponents aren't worried about that night. That they're not referencing that night. If it's three days and three nights, why they're not? You could say this is just all literary. It's just abbreviating by the authors. I'm just pointing out that the bulk of evidence points to there only being three, a three-day issue, not a three-day, three-night issue. But that's not really my major argument. I just want you to be aware that the other passages, that there is only one passage that adds to the three nights. Here are the bigger issues for me. If Jesus was crucified on Thursday, the day of preparation for the Passover, instead of being crucified on Friday, the day of the Passover, then Paul's identification of him as our Passover lamb in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7 loses some of its meaning. If Jesus isn't crucified on the day of Passover, there's something lost there in this theology of him being the Passover lamb. Now, again, that's not a strong case against him being crucified on Thursday. It's just, a, it's just a minor thing. This is a bigger issue to me. If Jesus was crucified on Thursday, the day of preparation for the Passover, rather than Friday, which is the Passover, then he would have eaten the Passover meal on the wrong day. And if Jesus failed to observe the Passover meal according to the parameters that are stated in Leviticus chapter 23 as to what day it's supposed to be observed, then he would have violated Mosaic law and therefore could have been guilty of sin. But here's the other thing. 
The term translated preparation day, and I found this on Apologetics Press website. They've got, a, they've got a great little article about this. And then also in the Truth For Today commentary on the book of Matthew, the term preparation, the Greek word for preparation, by the time of the first century had become the technical term for Friday. And guess what? In modern Greek today, the term for preparation is the term used for Friday. For those reasons, I contend that Jesus was still crucified on Friday. Again, they might not be great reasons. They may not be reasons that give you any reason for anybody to switch off of a Thursday crucifixion. Again, it really doesn't matter because what matters is that Sunday is the day he rose from the grave. I just need you to know this because as we go through the rest of this quarter studying the last week of Jesus' life, I'm going to speak as though Jesus is crucified on Friday and all other events are going to be set in correlation to that. If you disagree with me on it, hey, I'm sure you've disagreed with me on something else before. Like, I can't stand cats. You might love cats. Of course, I'm right, you're wrong on that, but that's okay. Um, but anyway, it's okay to disagree with me, and, 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 and that's fine. I just want you to understand why I'm going to be referencing Jesus' crucifixion as a Friday event and why everything is set in connection with that. So that was just me setting us up for the rest of our study for this quarter. And now I want to turn our attention to the actual... Oh, I had PowerPoint this whole time. I want you to see this. I'm going to be using this chart for the rest of this quarter. This is my way of helping us see when these events unfold. So as you look at this chart, you'll see these dates over here on the left side. Now, this is not a car. This is the name of a Jewish month. Nisan was, a, a, it was the, one of the holiest months in the, in the Jewish faith because on Nisan 15, that is the first day of unleavened bread or what we would call the Passover. Now, I've set these in context so you see, uh, so we can see what happens on each day. You'll also notice this color coordination that looks really weird. You have to remember, Jewish days start at sundown and go till the next sundown. So their day starts roughly six hours before ours does. So what I've done is, oh man, you can't see the top of the screen. I'll have to adjust this for next time, but up here, it's got hours. That's six o'clock, nine o'clock, twelve o'clock, three o'clock, six o'clock, nine o'clock, twelve o'clock, three o'clock. That's how it works. Um, unfortunately, our screen is not exactly fitting for some reason. But anyway, these are hours. I've got the hours set up into the Roman time. You, you, you'll read that Jesus was crucified at the what hour? Okay. To, and darkness fell on the land from what to what? So we've, I've got this lined up with that kind of terminology of, of hours up at the top. What I've done here is most people will agree that the, first, the Passover was, on, uh, was started on Thursday night and ran through Friday. And that, um, so Nisan 15 fits into that period. So I've added our days of the week when they would start and end to help us understand some of this stuff. So you're going to see this chart a good bit throughout this, the rest of this quarter, n noting that Nisan 15 is the Passover and that it starts on Thursday night at sundown and goes through Friday night at sun sundown, which means Nisan 16 is a Saturday, which is a Sabbath, but the Sabbath doesn't start until sundown. The Sabbath starts at sundown on Friday and runs through sundown on what we would call Saturday. So the first day of the week for the Jews would have begun at sundown on what we call Saturday night and then run till sundown on Sunday night. This is just my way of trying to help us visualize when these things occur. Let me see. So Nisan 17, beginning at sundown on Saturday, would be what we call, what we're going to call Resurrection Sunday. And those two, those two dates, no matter what timeline you focus on, the traditional or the alternative, both pretty much agree with those two dates. That that. that Thursday evening to Friday is the Passover, and that Saturday evening to Sunday is the Resurrection Sunday. 
it's the question timeline is, was Jesus crucified here on this Wednesday evening to Thursday day, or was he crucified here? Which one was it? So, again, that's why I don't really have those up there right now. But let's get into the passages. Oh, see, this would have been helpful. Traditional view identifies Nisan 15 as the day of, prepar- as the day of preparation. Alternative view views, uh, says that Nisan 14 is the day of preparation. Man, if I just remembered, I made a PowerPoint. Let's get to the text. So all four Gospels reference the triumphal entry. We're going to start with Matthew's in Matthew chapter 21, the first 11 verses. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to me, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Mark chapter 11, the first 11 verses. It's nice how that matches up with with Matthew chapter 21, the first 11 verses. Mark 11, now when they drew near to Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany of the Mount of, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever set. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing? Untying this colt. And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let, let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it. And he sat on it, and many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Luke's account. Luke chapter 19, verse 28 through 44. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet set. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And then John, John chapter 12, verse 12 through 19. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. I'm bringing bringing us back to this um, chart again, this timeline. 
you can see where we still have first day of the unleavened bread or Passover there at Nisan 15. I want us to see where the triumphal entry happened in the context of this last week of Jesus' life. Now, we know that the Feast of Unleavened Bread started with the Passover. The Passover was the first night of that feast. It lasted for seven days. And we know that it was to, be, to take place on a particular day. And so according to Mosaic Law, the Passover lamb was to be killed at twilight, that is at sunset, on the evening of the 14th day of Nisan. So, here's the 14th day of Nisan. Twilight is here at the end of the day, starting Nisan 15. And they're to eat this Passover lamb on Nisan 15. Um, you can read about this in Exodus chapter 12, verses 6 through 8, Numbers chapter 28, verse 16 through 17, and Leviticus chapter 23, verses 5 through 7. And then the Feast of Unleavened Bread would, be con would continue till the 21st day of the month at the conclusion of its evening, which is recorded in Exodus chapter 12, verse 18. So we've got the start of this feast. Now John chapter 12, verse 1 indicates... that the anointing of Jesus' feet by Mary took place six days before the Passover. So if we count back six days, we get to Nisan 9. Jesus would have been in Bethany. It's after the resurrection of Lazarus. There's a feast, held for, there's a feast being held at Simon's house, an unknown character. And Martha is there serving, and Mary comes up and anoints Jesus' feet. Um, that's the occasion that... Judas Iscariot gets upset that she uses this expensive perfume that could have been sold. That whole story that we referenced a little bit last week from John chapter 12 in the first few verses, that happened six days before the Passover. What's interesting is that John chapter 12 and verse 12 begins with the phrase, the next day, meaning the day after Mary anoints Jesus' feet. So the triumphal entry would have happened on Nisan 10. And if the days of the week for us are correct, you'll see that that happened on Sunday, the Sunday before his resurrection, exactly one week before his resurrection. That's why the Sunday, the Sunday before Easter, and don't, don't get me wrong, Easter is an inappropriate term for that, that particular Sunday, because it's a pagan term that was brought into religious context. But that, that Sunday called Easter that is supposed to be aligned with the day of Jesus' resurrection, and the only reason it's so aligned is because of Passover. It's not, the, it's not that you notice how Easter bounces every year between March and April. It's because it has to do with moons and such, and the Passover is associated with moons. Anyway, so usually the Jewish Passover is close to Easter. But anyway, the Sunday before Easter on, on our calendars is often referred to as Palm Sunday in certain religious circles. You may see it on a calendar marked as that. It's a reference to the triumphal entry happening the Sunday before Jesus' resurrection, just so you know. But we don't necessarily use that terminology. I'm just, letting, just helping you uh, associate with where these terms come from because they get used in our society. So based on John 12, we find out that five days before the Passover, which took place on the sixth day of the week, would be the first day of the week, which would be the day that Jesus entered Jerusalem triumphantly. Um, and think about this. Think about how bold, how audacious Jesus' entrance is into Jerusalem. He's not, it's not quiet. It's not a reserved entrance. It's not secretive. The whole town seems to be rushing out there to see him. I love some of the details that John provides for us in this, con in this particular story because he makes it clear that the resurrection of Lazarus wasn't that long ago. In his chronology, it was in the previous chapter, chapter 11, John 11. And we're, we're just a few verses removed from that. But in John 12, as, as John is telling us about the triumphal entry, he specifically mentions that, there were, that the, some of the crowd that was following Jesus had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead. Some of those people 
are traveling with him from Bethany, which is just two miles away. They're just two miles away from where Lazarus was brought back from the dead. Jerusalem, two miles away. And some of that crowd that witnessed it are with him, and they're bearing witness. They're still talking about it. And then we're also told in John chapter 12 that crowds from the city of Jerusalem came out to meet them because they had heard about the resurrection of Lazarus. See, the resurrection of Lazarus was a key event leading up to the last week. Remember, we just talked about this last Wednesday night that the reason the Sanhedrin wants to kill Jesus is in part because of the resurrection of Lazarus. It had brought him so much attention, so much popularity that they wanted to get rid of him. And you notice in John 12, we have the Pharisees, or I shouldn't say that, I should say we have some of the religious leaders standing around observing Jesus' entrance, and they say, look, the whole world has gone to him. They're jealous. He's got all the attention right now, and, and, and they are jealous of that. And Jesus doesn't enter the city quietly. You know, his disciples didn't even want him to make this trip. They didn't want him to go near Jerusalem to, to, when Lazarus was sick because there had been attempts on his life already. They know this is dangerous. Jesus knows it's his last week. But he's not afraid to enter it on a donkey in a parade-like fashion. What I want to do with the rest of our time is talk about the significance of this event, and in so doing, we'll talk about some of the details. But one reason Jesus is not afraid to enter the city of Jerusalem in this fashion is because he knew it was the fulfillment of prophecy. The triumphal entry is significant because it fulfills prophecy. Matthew and John make reference to this fact in their Gospels. Is Matthew who um, indicates what was spoken by the prophet, as he says. And he goes on to quote this. He says, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Now what's interesting here is that Matthew's quotation is not taken directly from one Old Testament passage. It's actually a combination of Isaiah chapter 62 and verse 11, as well as Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. Isaiah chapter 62 and verse 11 says, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So what Matthew does is he has combined two quotes from the Old Testament into one. And that was not an uncommon practice. Mark does this in the first chapter of his gospel. He joins a passage from Malachi with a passage from Isaiah because they have a common phrase in them and he kind of joins them together. And guess what? That's exactly what Matthew's doing. That whole daughter of Zion language that appears both in Isaiah 62 and Zechariah 9 have brought those two passages together for him. And so Matthew and, and John as well will show that this whole event is fulfillment of prophecy. I haven't spent a lot of time focusing on the, all the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled as we've done this study. But when I get to the last week of Jesus' life, I, I, in my mind I picture him checking boxes. You know Jesus knew his Old Testament. And I can just picture Jesus after that donkey ride into the city, he's like, all right, it's one less prophecy left. One less prophecy to fulfill. Knowing he's near the end. I mean, his, his la the last prophecy he fulfills is while he's hanging on the cross. Shortly before his death, he's going to fulfill his last prophecy. And I can just imagine them rolling through his mind as he checks all, as he's nearing the end of that list, as he's nearing the end of the list of prophecies left to be fulfilled. But the triumphal entry is significant because it fulfills prophecy. But I also find the triumphal entry significant because it identifies Jesus as the Prince of Peace. One thing that stood out to me in Matthew's account is how the people, despite everything that's going on, 
The people ask in verse 10 of Matthew 21, who is this? And the response they get from the crowd, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. I find that fascinating because that's not what they were saying when they were shouting to him. This event gives identification to Jesus in a unique way. I'm going to talk about another one in just a second, but first, it, it really does set him up as the Prince of Peace. You know, Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6 is where that title comes from. Jesus is identified wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. The way this associates him as peace is the fact that he's on a donkey. If I were to pick the animal I wanted to ride on in a parade, it wouldn't be a donkey. But that's what, that's what Jesus is riding in on. And you can say, oh, it's just because of the prophecy. I think there's more to it than that. Because donkeys were symbolic of royalty and wealth in that culture. Go through the Old Testament and see how many times donkeys are counted as part of people's wealth. Job is said to have possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. Before, they were all catastrophically taken, and God then blessed him with twice as many at the end of the book. But his wealth included numbers of donkeys. When Abraham left Egypt, we're told that Pharaoh dealt well with him, giving him many things, including sheep, oxen, male servants, female servants, male donkeys, and female donkeys. They were calculated as part of his wealth. Among the gifts that Jacob prepared for Esau when he was returning to meet Esau for the first time since he deceived him, among the gifts he brought for Esau were 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. See, there's an association with wealth. In this life, Jesus was never wealthy. His evidence suggests that his parents were quite poor based on the sacrifice they had to make at the temple for him when he was born. But in this moment, the animal on which he rides speaks to wealth that extends beyond the material. It speaks to his royalty as the true king of kings. Now here's the other thing about donkeys. And here's why I reference the aspect of peace with them. When a military leader returned home from a conquest, they didn't ride a horse back into town. They rode a donkey. You rode a you rode a donkey to symbolize peace. If you were uh, uh, the leader of a nation going to visit another nation, you would ride a donkey to indicate you were coming in peace. This is depicted in the Song of Deborah in Judges chapter 5, where Deborah instructs those who ride on white donkeys to tell of her and Balak's victory over Jabin, the king of Canaan. The messengers were to go out and spread the good news, but to do so riding on the animal that symbolized peace. So as Jesus enters Jerusalem, he does so riding on an animal that is symbolic of peace as well as wealth. And no one brings peace like Jesus. It's fascinating. He's riding into town on an animal symbolizing peace, but he's not going to have peace all week long. His opponents don't recognize peace when it comes to him. But he is the prince of peace. He is also the king of kings. And I think that's the other thing this particular uh, event in his life illustrates. In Revelation chapter 17, verse 14, and Revelation chapter 19 and verse 16, Jesus is identified as Lord of Lord and King of Kings. Typically, we associate those titles with God the Father but they do get transferred to Jesus as well by the time we get to the book of Revelation. Now, I want you to think about Jesus in regards to being a king. There's one event in his life prior to this where he gets, he gets truly treated like a king. Do you know when it was? Take a wild guess. 
His birth. When the wise men brought those gifts, they were bringing gifts fit for a king. Throughout the rest of Jesus' career, he, he would encourage people not to reveal his identity. He would deflate situations in which somebody wanted to make him king. You can think about the feeding of the 5,000 in John's Gospel, John chapter 6. After he performed that miracle, the crowds came to take him by force to make him king. But he withdrew from them. Jesus always deflected that sort of praise in this life. But here he is, riding into town on a donkey. And he lets the actions of the people in their words address him as king. Their actions evidenced his kingliness in the fact that they were laying down their cloaks both on the donkey and on the road. Removing one's cloak and laying it before a monarch was an ancient way of showing respect for his authority. It was a way of saying, I'm placing myself under your rule. There's a couple of times it happens in reference to the, um, or there's at least one time you can see it happen in the Old Testament in 2 Kings chapter 9 and verse 13 when Elisha had Jehu anointed king by, and the people responded by taking off their cloaks and putting them under Jehu on the, uh, on the steps so that he would not walk on the, on the bare ground. Palm branches were also symbolic. They, uh, they, they were symbolic of victory and, and nationalism, particularly in the intertestamental period in the lead-up before Jesus, Jesus came on the scene. And so the, the cloaks being laid on the ground was a way of symbolizing that Jesus is king. The palm branches symbolize, symbolize their, their uh, uh, military fervor, that they believed he was a military king as well because the palm branches symbolized victory. It shows their misunderstanding of his kingdom. So their actions spoke to his kingship, but also their words. Did you pay attention when I read earlier the things they were saying? The crowd shouted, Hosanna. That means save now. And they also would identify Jesus as son of David. That's a reference to the greatest king they ever had. And at times they would even shout the king of Israel. They would call him the king of Israel. Their declarations actually are derived from Psalm 118, verse 25 and 26, which says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. That passage as you may have heard in our roundtable studies on Sunday nights, is part of a section of the book of Psalms called the Hallel. That's H-A-L-L-E-L. You may recognize that term because it's part of the word hallelujah. Hallel means praise. And hallelujah means praise God. Praise Yah, Yahweh, God. The Hallel came to be the term for this one specific section in Psalm, from Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. And they, they, those Psalms were recited as part of the Passover celebration. And they're reciting it now as Jesus enters the city during the week of Passover. And they're associating with him as the son of David, the king of Israel. There is clear understanding of identity here, even if there's a misunderstanding of the type of kingdom he would have. And Jesus allows the crowd to do it. He didn't silence them as he did so many people when he, when he performed miracles. He didn't try to, to get away from them in the moment. He permitted the crowds to revere him as a king, which is something he prohibited himself at the temptation, and prohibited the crowds at the feeding of the 5,000. One author said it this way, this was the first and only time that Jesus planned and promoted a public demonstration that called attention to himself. Now I want you to think about that. Just five days before his death, or less, is the first time, other than his birth, 
that he's receiving the praise that he as king deserves. And you know what else is interesting to me about the triumphal entry? As you reflect on him receiving the praise he deserves as king of kings, the triumphal entry shows that Jesus deserves to be worshipped. It's interesting to me that he is riding a that has never been ridden before. That little detail provided in Matthew stands out to me. And as I look this up, why does it have to be a, a colt that's never been ridden before? Why does that matter? Well, there are two instances in the Old Testament in which sacred activity was specifically assigned to an animal that had never been yoked or ridden. Under Mosaic law, in Numbers chapter 19 and verse 2, a heifer without defect and on which a yoke has never come was the necessary sacrifice for purifying the temple. That was the animal that was, an animal never, a heifer that had never been yoked was the animal that could be used to, to purify the tabernacle when needed. Numbers chapter 19 and verse 2. There's a sacred element to an, this particular animal that had never been yoked. Then when the Ark of the Covenant was being returned to Israel by the Philistines, remember the Philistines captured it one time, they were instructed to prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke in 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 7. Now, that's not the way that the Israelites were ordered to transport the ark, but that was the way the Philistines were ordered to transport it back to Israel. It's interesting that there are these two occasions where, where, the, the, where animals that have never been used before are being used for the first time in a very sacred thing whether it was a sacrifice to cleanse the tabernacle or it was the transportation of the Ark of the Covenant. And Matthew tells us that Jesus is going to ride into Jerusalem on an animal that has never been ridden. I wonder if that's to highlight the sacredness of the moment, the sacredness of the person, that sort of thing. Much the same way that Unused animals identified sacredness in the Old Testament. You kind of leave, you set me up for this next thing I want to talk about. Luke informs us that some of the Pharisees in the crowd said, told Jesus to rebuke his disciples, and Jesus said, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Jesus was in effect saying, if the disciples stop their praising of God and his Son, then the stones, creation itself, would take their place and cry out in praise. Go read, I think it's Psalm 148. It talks about how the, all of creation praises the Lord. I think in this moment, it catches my attention that Jesus is saying, hey, if they don't praise me right now, something else will because this is all created by me for me. And it's just another little reminder that Jesus Christ deserves to be praised. He went so much of his life not receiving that praise. And just before his death, he finally receives it. And now, after his death and his burial and his resurrection, we should never stop giving it. Because guess what? If we stop giving him the praise, I'm certain the rocks would be more than happy to take it over for us. One last thought before that bell catches us. The triumphal entry also shows how quickly men can turn on Jesus. In the span of five days, more or less, the crowds went from shouting, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, to shouting, Crucify him. They went from shouting, Hosanna, which means save now, to mocking him by saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. And they went from declaring him the king of Israel to saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. In less than one week, 
they went from this amazing processional into the city to a mob mentality begging for his death. And it's sobering to think if you and I were there, how easy it would be for us to be part of that crowd. How easy it would have been for you and I to praise Jesus on Sunday and by Friday call for his death. I would like to think that we would be more like the apostles who just deserting. I mean, no big deal, but but it would be very easy for us to be the crowd. And so that should be sobering for us to realize how quickly people turned on Jesus because we, we can turn on him just as quickly by the decisions we make on a day-to-day basis. That brings me to the end of the things I wanted to talk about in relation to triumphal entry tonight. I'm sure there's more that could be said and more that could be studied. Next week, we'll continue this examination the last week of his life. We're going to focus on the temple cleansing next week. Before we close, are there any questions, observations, debates, arguments, ridicules? Ridicule? Okay. No, you're, you are correct. Cult, now, the cult may not be small, but it would be the, the offspring of the mother donkey, and so shouldn't be where he's writing one that's bigger and one, and one smaller. You are correct. Again, I put the art up there just to show, just to kind of have this, hey, this is what culture over the past two, two millennia have developed as their depiction of these events. I've, usually when I do this class, I do it in a smaller setting, and I show video clips from Jesus movies, which is really fun, because you get to do a compare-contrast with Scripture. So my goal isn't to say, hey, that's how it looked. It's just to show what culture has done. Yeah. I, I, the, the way you have to look at that is that different authors give different details. Like John doesn't even mention the fact that two disciples were sent into town to get this donkey, that Jesus just found it. But Matthew is the one that gets the most specific because Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience and he wants to line up that prophecy specifically for his readers because they're, they're Jewish, they're going to know the Old Testament. And so he wants to make sure they understand, okay, it's the cult that he's writing on, that sort of thing. And Matthew's the only one that tells us that the mother was there too, I believe, that the mother donkey was with it. And so Matthew's just got a little bit more specific detail than the others. I don't think it's disagreeance. I think it's picking and choosing what details will be included by the authors. Any other questions or comments? Let me say a quick word of prayer before we dismiss. Lord, we are grateful that we've had the opportunity to study, and we ask for your blessings on us as we go through this week. And, and Lord, help us to shine as lights in this world. Thank you for your Son, and it is through his name we pray. Amen.